The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible, open with me to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 8. We're in a series called Walking in the Promises of God, and it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Joshua, but we're back. Joshua chapter 8. And pick up with me. We're going to kind of make our way quickly through this chapter. I'll read through uh, the first nine verses. I'll let you read some of the verses on your own at home, and then we'll end with the last few verses. But verse one of chapter eight, we read this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Verse 3, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. Verse six, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according all the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai and to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night, for your word. I thank you for your church, your ecclesia, the gathering of your people, your sons and daughters. We're brothers and sisters here tonight gathered to worship you, to sing, to receive instruction, to be taught from your word, to, to know what to do, to know your ways, to know our tendencies to receive divine instruction for our life. And so we pray you would give us ears to hear what you are saying collectively to your church, individually to each one of us tonight. And I pray for all of us, like Joshua, we would be ready to say yes, whatever it is that you tell us, we would say yes. So God, have your way. Lord, I pray you'd bless all those who, who give of, of worship of their tithes and offerings even now. Lord, bless as you have promised to do. And so we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Joshua chapter eight, and we pick up in our story. And then just a little bit back from there, when, when, when Moses was preparing the people to enter the promised land back in Deuteronomy in his final farewell message, he told the people about the land. And he gave a description about the land, though he had never been there by divine revelation, he knew what it was to be. And he told them this in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he says, the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. And he goes on to say a lot more things. And he was giving them, on the one hand, a very literal geographical description of the promised land. In fact, if you go to Israel, there's a lot of hills and there's a lot of valleys. But when Moses says that, it's not simply a geographical lesson that he's teaching the people. There's a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor that he was implying in that. And when we look at that, when we study the Old Testament, we realize that, yes, this Christian life, if we pay attention, is just that it's a life of hills and valleys, it's a life of ups and downs. 
For the children of Israel, there were great victories. They were, they were the great battles of Jericho where God supernaturally shows up. That's the highest high. Well, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Drew did a great job. The very low valleys of the defeat, the humiliating defeat of Ai. We encounter great men of faith like Caleb and Joshua, and yet we encounter scoundrels like Achan a couple of weeks ago. Highs and lows, high hills and valleys. And the reason we pay attention to this is because as we read the accounts, I hope you realize it's not simply to read about the history of ancient Israel. Oh, we want to know about that. But the whole point is this. In fact, Paul tells us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, all these things, these things he's talking about that happened to Israel. He says, all these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So Paul says to the New Testament, to you and I, to the church, hey, read these things, read these accounts, study them, not just so you can know history, but through them, you'll see an example. One, you're going to see, listen, if you're paying attention, when you look at the nation of Israel, you're going to see patterns like a mirror into your own life. Because oftentimes when you study Israel, it's easy to go, man, those guys were idiots. They were rebellious. They did this. I can't believe they didn't, didn't listen here. And then you're like, well, actually, I'm kind of like that sometimes. And so we look at them and we see our own tendencies, our own patterns, our, our times where we do have faith and times where we doubt. But more than that, too, what I want us to take note of is that through through these stories, we see the patterns of who our God is because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. And the way he disciplines and loves Israel is the way he disciplines and loves you and he loves me. When we stumble and fall, he, he corrects us, but he restores us. It says in the, in the book of Psalms that the children of Israel knew the acts of God, but Moses knew his ways. If we would study these things, we would learn the ways of God, how he speaks, what he's after, what he wants to do. And in chapter eight, we'll see chapter eight, it's a, it's a great chapter. Chapter seven was a valley. Chapter eight's, you know, one of, the, one of the hills. Chapter eight reveals to us the heart of God. The heart of God is, is one of blessing. The title of this message is Blessings and Cursings. And we'll see that's how this story ends for us tonight. It's, it's Israel declaring and reading out the blessings and cursings. But what I want to say to us tonight is the God that we serve and who has recorded these stories for us. He's letting us know his heart for you. It's one of blessings. And he certainly warns us that the cursings are possible if you reject, if you disobey. But I pray that we would hear not just the fear of, oh no, that's coming, but more than that, the possibility, the potential, if we would but listen and understand the heart of our God, it's a heart of blessing. It's a heart of favor. And that's what this text is really all about tonight. Well, perhaps it's been a few weeks, you've had a bit too much turkey and stuffing and you don't remember chapter seven, so I'll quickly summarize. Again, Pastor Drew did a great job. But chapter seven was supposed to be a very great chapter. They defeated mighty Jericho and Ai was just a small, small little settlement. It really posed no significant threat. They thought they could take him like that. But if you know the story, you remember they, they experienced an absolutely humiliating defeat. There was one man in particular, God was very clear in his instruction. He said, Jericho is mine and everything in Jericho belongs to me. That means they weren't allowed to take any of the spoils, no animals, no livestock. All of those things were devoted to God. But one man thought, you know what? I can't wait. I, I'm too afraid I'm gonna miss out. A guy by the name of Achan, you remember the story, takes some spoils, he thinks he can hide it. But because of his sin that he had hidden, the devastating results were a whole lot of people suffered the consequences. Not just himself, not just his family, but many others. And that's what sin always does. 
That's the big lie is that oh, your sin it only affects you. That is the biggest lie. Our sin always affects far more people than we realize. And so they suffered a humiliating defeat and God goes through a series of events to expose where the sin is and who it lies with, but ultimately so he can correct. And at the end of chapter seven, there's confession and God grants forgiveness. And chapter eight begins, and I love how it begins. It, it begins with God speaking a word, a word of extreme encouragement to his leader. And he says, Joshua, and I just love that it says, and the Lord said, the Lord spoke. Joshua, look at there, and, and you might want to underline this. Do not be afraid. Joshua, do not be dismayed. That, that word dismayed can be translated frazzled, discouraged, um, paralyzed even by fear. Joshua, don't stay in this place where you're frazzled. You don't know what to do. Don't let fear paralyze you. Now, Joshua is a man of great faith. We know that. We, we love Joshua, but here he's in a place where he's got some fear. Why do we know that? Because God's saying, don't be afraid. You don't tell somebody who's full of courage not to be afraid, right? But God knows what's going on in the, in the heart of his servant. For Joshua, it's easy as I thought about the fear that must have crept in. Because Joshua's the leader, right? And as the leader goes, so goes the people. The responsibility weighs heavy on Joshua. And because of his sin of presumption, meaning he didn't seek the counsel and advice of God, he just went in, there was a whole lot of families that now had widows. There was a whole lot of orphans that were now in Israel. And you can imagine as a leader that that weighed heavily on Joshua's mind. You can imagine the fear of his failure, the consequences of his sin and what it did to his people. I'm certain, certain there was probably doubts. Maybe somebody else should step in. I failed so miserably. I don't know. I'm sure there was doubt that crept into the, the heart of the people of God. Maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe he's not with us. I'm not sure. Should we go for You can imagine. I don't have to put a lot of thoughts in your head, the, you know, what he was feeling, what you would be feeling in that circumstance. And so God comes and says, Joshua, your sin's been dealt with. You've confessed, you've, you've repented, I've forgiven. Now it's time to get going. Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't stay in this place where you're paralyzed. Some of you tonight, you're in a place where you're just paralyzed in fear because you've failed, because you've you know, committed some sin or, or something in your life where you thought, there's no way it's gonna happen. And because of the circumstances, you failed and you find yourself in a similar situation. Oh, it may not be as dramatic as Joshua's sin, but for you, it's just as real and just as painful. For you, the, the fear is just as real and paralyzing. And I believe God would speak the same thing to you tonight. You see, one of the hardest things I know in my own life and in the, in the life of any Christian is, is what you do when you fail. It's what do you do after you've sinned, after you've stumbled, after you've fallen. One of the hardest things to do is to get back up because we feel guilty, we feel icky, we feel shame, we feel like we've let God down, we feel like we've let others down, we feel like, man, I, I can't go back to church, I can't get going, and we, it's, it's so hard, we want to stay in that place. Why do we feel that way? Because condemnation. You see, Satan's really good. We, we think Satan's great job is to tempt us. Like, that's his second great job. That's the first thing he does when he comes to us is he wants to tempt us and he tempts us in sin and, and we say yes and agree and we stumble and we fall. But you know what Satan's number one job, his number one strategy is actually not temptation. He, he, he employs temptation so he can actually do the thing he's really good at and that's accusation. In fact, the name Satan, you know, is literally in, in the Bible, the Satan, he's called the Satan. It means he's the accuser. 
That's his title. That's who he is. That's what he does. And so that feeling that you get, that shame, that guilt, that, that, that paralysis that doesn't allow you to kind of move forward where you just feel condemned. Maybe it's the first time you've fallen or second or seventh or eighth. And it's just like, ah, and you feel afraid. You're like, I, I'm never going to lose this. I'm never going to shake this. What you're feeling, what you're hearing, that voice that's coming at you, is the, it's the voice of the accuser brings, who brings fear into your life. And what you need to hear tonight is the voice of your father who says, hey, if you've confessed, I forgive you. If you confess, I've washed it clean. I've got something better for you. In fact, it says in your notes here, I love this Proverbs 24, 16. It says, for a righteous man may fall down seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. It doesn't say the, the righteous, you know, uh, falls once or twice. It says seven times. The reality is in the life of, uh, of a believer, until we get to heaven, we will stumble and fall. I wish I could tell you there was a way to inoculate us as we're all hoping and praying and people want an inoculation vaccine. And stuff. I wish there was a way to inoculate us from sin and failure. There's not this side of heaven. Now, God has provided a remedy for that. We're forgiven, but it actually says in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you know what God says? He says, you deceive yourselves. He says, if you say you have no sin, you're calling me a liar, God says. But then he says in the very next verse, but if you confess your sin, God says, I'm faithful and just to forgive you. The reality is this is something, listen, for all of us to hear tonight, there's something that we have to get good at. Not, not that we want to stumble, not that we anticipate it, but when it does happen, what do we do about it? What would Joshua do? What would the children of Israel do after their great defeat? They had a great hill top experience. Now they're in the valley. I came across this quote from a British preacher. It said this, life like war is a series of mistakes and he says, and he is not the best Christian nor the best general who makes the fewest false steps. He said, poor mediocrity may secure that, but he is best who wins the most victories by retrieval of mistakes. It basically goes on to say, look at, attempt nothing and you'll fail at nothing. If we're ever going to accomplish anything, there's a risk that we may stumble and fall. It's what we do after we've stumbled and, and fallen. Proverbs 24 says, 16, the righteous may fall down seven times, but he gets back up. The enemy wants to keep us down. He wants to point the finger. He wants to bring the condemnation. And some of you are in that place tonight. Maybe you're online listening tonight. You feel like, I can't even go to church. I've been in that place before. Like, you feel like such a hypocrite and the enemy's just condemning. Listen, God's telling you tonight, it's time to get back up. Amen. Fear not. Yes, confess the sin. Yes, acknowledge it. Bring it before your, your father and he will confess and he will restore and he will speak those words. Fear not, I have dealt with this. Fear not, get going. For some of you, maybe it's a failed marriage and you think, I can never go forward again. I can never get another relationship again. Maybe you did it on your own. Now it's time to do it with God. It's a whole different way of doing it. For some of you, it's a, it's a failed ministry endeavor. You, you felt so sure and you stepped out of the ministry and it failed and you're thinking, I can never step out again. And God would say, no. That's not true. If I'm calling you, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to walk with you. Get up, get going. Maybe it's a business adventure. Maybe it's a friendship. Listen, I don't know what it is. I don't know where you're at, but maybe you need to hear this tonight. The biggest mistake is to simply not try again. No matter how bad we failed, our God is a God of grace. 
He's a God of mercy. He's a God who delights to speak to you and to me and say, fear not. Do not be dismayed. Don't stay down. Get back up and get going. So there's a new beginning. Verses three through nine reveal to us a new strategy. God had a strategy for AI, just like he had a strategy for Jericho. He had a strategy the whole time and God reveals this strategy to Joshua. Whereas Jericho, it was a very unique strategy, right? I mean, there was never again in the history of the world a time when God said, march around a city seven times, blow trumpets, and I'll give you the victory. That was a very unique plan, a very unique strategy. But listen, it was God's plan. Now here in chapter eight, God, once again, he has a plan. It's a plan that this time Joshua was listening for. Chapter seven, the plan was there. But Joshua, listen, he never actually took the time to ask God for his plan. God always had the plan, but he, Joshua jumped ahead and they experienced the devastating consequences. God always has a plan for your life. God always has a purpose for your life. The problem is sometimes we just kind of get ahead and we never stop to ask God what the plan is, but he always does. So God has this plan and, and this plan is a little bit more usual. It's a bit more normal as far as strategies for battle and war. God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lay an ambush. I want you to do to AI what AI did to you. Essentially, you remember Israel, they were overconfident and their overconfidence led to pride. It led to their downfall. Well, AI now is in that same place. They think, ah, Israel's nothing. And so God lays out a plan of an ambush that says, oh, feign like you are retreating, let them follow you. And God lays out a very strategic plan that ensures victory and ultimately success. But here's the point, and here's what I don't want us to miss. There was a plan for Jericho and there's a plan for AI. The whole point is in both cases, it's not so much the plan itself, oh, that's important. The point is it was God's plan that they stopped and listened and received God's plan. The point for you and me is that we would stop and listen and ask for God's plan. It doesn't matter what it is, if it's big or if it is small. It doesn't matter if it's mighty Jericho or tiny AI, God's power, God's strength, God's presence is always needed. Listen, it's in your notes. The greatest challenges, quote, Jericho can be won with God's power and the tiniest challenges, AI will be lost without God's power. And I don't know what it is in your life. Oftentimes, this is what we tend to do. And if something's huge, like you just like, I don't know what it is, but you know, like, there's no way I can do this. Man, you're praying, you're fasting, you're reading scripture. You're like, you know, like, I cannot do this. God has to. And that's Jericho. Like, they're like, we can't do this. We need you to do it, God. And here's the problem in our life. And I don't know what that might be, but then there's the AI. Well, that's a piece of cake. They're small, it's easy, I got this, and God, you're with me, and, and, and we, we launch out. And I don't know what it might be, but we launch out without God, and we experience the devastating consequences. The whole point is, it doesn't matter how big or how small, we need God's power. If you were asked to, to, to give a message, there's, a, there's a, a harvest crusade, and Greg Laurie's like, I'm sick, and I want you to fill in, and there's gonna be 100,000 people in the stadium, and I want you to preach. You're like, I am sick, I've got COVID, I can never go out again in my life, sorry. You know, you're, like, oh, you're like, okay, and you're praying. Okay, God, you have to do this. And you would be studying. Maybe you got a call, hey, could you fill in? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Bible study that I do down at the old folks' home. There's about five to six people and they're, they kind of pay attention, they kind of take naps. How would you prepare for that? Well, okay, I got this, I've got a Bible study and I'll, I'll grab one of the old ones and I'll do it. 
Listen, you should prepare the same like you would for the 100,000 in the stadium, like you would for the five or six in the convalescent home, because either way, you need God's power. Maybe it's for you, it's, it's, it's a business. And listen, you're a Christian man or woman and you do it for the Lord. And it, it's the biggest presentation of your life. It's the biggest opportunity for growth. And you're praying and praying. Or maybe it's just, ah, it's just a Friday and you gotta turn in your numbers. Man, pray and ask God's blessing. I don't care what it is, but we have to learn to do what the lesson of AI is. It doesn't matter how big or how small, we have to seek the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we know this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and in all your ways, in the Jericho ways and in the AI ways, the big things and the small things. Acknowledge God. Say, God, should I buy this car? God, should I date this person? God, I need your power as I go and share with this person. God, I just need your power today so that I can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Lord, I need you for this day that I would, I would walk a life of purity and holiness. I would have pure thoughts. I would have uh, uh, words that speak life and that bring honor to people. Lord, I need you every single day. Not just, oh, here's a big day. or No, every time and every situation for the Jerichos and the AIs of our life. Now, verses 10 through 29, I'll let you read on your own. Like I said, it's a little cold tonight. We're going to try to get through the study quickly. But essentially, 10 through 29 summarizes and details for us the, the strategy that God gave. God said, I want you to do this. I want you to lay an ambush. I want you to draw them out. And that's exactly what those verses detail. So go home and read it tonight. But essentially what it is, it's a, it's a story that's recorded that they obey that they do exactly what God told them to do. And when you read the story, because sometimes when you read the book of Joshua and others, it's like, oh, this seems harsh. Never forget you're reading. Listen, this is not Israel's war per se. This is Yahweh's war. And what I mean by that, we have to understand this was Yahweh's war, not just to give Israel a land. He was doing that. But it was also Yahweh's war against sin against the people who have been given over 400 years to repent and change their ways from the most depraved sins you can imagine. And so when you read these stories, I know it's harsh. I know some of it doesn't sit well with us, but never forget that. This was not just Israel's imperial conquest, but this was God's way of bringing his divine judgment and at the same time also accomplishing the purposes of fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to his descendants. But listen, as you read it, remember, it's not how clever of a plan it was. And it was a great plan. Strategically, military, uh, you go to West Point, they actually study the book of Joshua and some of the military strategy of divide and conquer and ambush and all these different things. But the point isn't just how you know, brilliant the strategy was. No, the whole point is this. It was about obedience. The key to victory is always obedience. With Jericho, it was obedience. As crazy as it sounded, it was about obeying God. And here with AI, as small as it was, they, they were given a plan and they obeyed it to a T. Obedience always brings blessing. The key to, to blessings in our life is not just to simply go, yes, God is good and he wants to do great things. Those are true. And God gives us promises. But those promises, in order for them to be realized in our life, for them to move beyond potential, for them to be actual, requires that we step out in faith, the obedience of faith. That says, Lord, I believe what you say, and I'm going to act on it. I'm going to believe what you've told me to do, and I'm going to do it. That's why James says, and you know this very well, we are called not just to be hearers of the word, 
but doers of the word. Because if we're just hearers, if you just come tonight and you go, oh, that's interesting about AI, that's a great principle, and you, I'm gonna highlight that one in pink, I'm gonna circle that one in red and great, and you're just a hearer, but you do nothing with it, you know what the Bible says? You're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself that somehow that's gonna bring some great thing in your life. That's a great thing, but that's not enough. What we have to do is, in, is take it and then say, Holy Spirit, help me to do it. Help me to live it out. Help me to walk in the truth. Change my mind and how I think about the situation. Change my mind and how I approach people. Change my words. Help me to be a doer, to doer of your word. God has promised so many blessings. What he wants, wanted for Israel is what he wants for you and for his, all of his kids. But there's an obedience that is required. There's an obedience that says, yes, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. So many of the blessings that God has for us are required and tied to our acting. A lot of people, I want to be financially blessed. God's like, guess what? I want to financially bless you. And you're like, great, Lord, come give it to me. And God says, great, start tithing and trusting me. What? No, 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 give it to me first. God says, it doesn't work that way. If you'll step out and you'll, if you'll sow, you will reap. And it doesn't matter what it is in your life. God says, you do this, this is going to happen. Evangelism. You're like, I want to see this person saved. I want to see them come into the kingdom. God says, I want that too. And God says, guess what? The gospel, the gospel that you know, that gospel has power. It's the power of God into salvation. But it does no good if you just hold it within yourself. But the moment you step out in faith, in obedience, and you share that gospel, blessing. That power gets released. If it just simply stays within and you believe it, great. There's a power that's happening in you, but it's really not doing anything for anybody else. And I could go on and on and on. And, and, but the point is this, what we see over and over in the book of Joshua and throughout the scriptures, it's about obedience. One little side note I, I wanted to mention back in verse two, God said this, he said, this time only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourself. You see, Achan, back in chapter 7, didn't stop to listen. He wasn't patient enough. You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't waiting on God. He thought, I got to take these things from Jericho because I'm not sure that God's going to give me what I think is due me. But Jericho tells us this. Jericho was completely God's victory. God did it all. Jericho was the first fruits of the land, right? It was the very first fruit that God gave to Israel at that time. And God says, everything in Jericho belongs to me. It's a first fruit. From that point on, every other battle, every other victory, Israel is able to take the spoils. God says, the first fruits are mine and then the rest are yours. God says, you are now allowed to take the spoils. You are now allowed to take the plunder. And think of Achan would have only waited he'd still be alive at that time. His family would have been blessed. They wouldn't have had the stigma and shame and the defeat. And I think there's a great point and a great principle for all of us is that one, we believe the lie that God's holding out on us. And we think, oh man, I don't know. I better, I better act. I better move. And we're impatient. We go grab and God says, just be patient. Trust me. If you leave the things to me, I always give the best. And there's a lot of things where God says, I want you to wait. This is a great thing, but it's not the right timing. You've got to wait on me. You got to wait until you put a ring on it, until there's a covenant. If you don't do that, it's not going to bring you the thing you want it to bring. But if you do it in my timing, in my way, it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's a very powerful thing. 
There's a lot of applications to that, but I think it's important for us to see God says, hey, now you can take the spoils. Achan, you, you, you jumped ahead, you jumped the gun, you went outside of my word, you went outside of my, my ways and you missed out. But when you do it God's way, when you obey his commands, man, blessing. Well, verse 30, we'll end the chapter and it's a, it ends in a very peculiar way, but again, a very powerful way. Verse 30, we read this. It says, at that time, Right after the events of Ai, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal, about 25 miles north of Ai. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 27, God said, when you come into the land, I want you to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and do this. And so they're obeying what God had revealed to Moses, to the people of God. Moses had never been there, but he knew about these mountains. He knew what they were supposed to do. And so immediately, once they secure the victory, the first thing is not to keep going on in battle, not taking the next town, but they obey what God had commanded. So they go to Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. It says in the the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, He wrote on the stones a copy of the law, which he had written. So most commentators think he wrote a copy of the Ten Commandments there on the altar for the entire people to read. And all Israel's sojourners, as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel." Verse 34, and afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assemblies of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, 29, and 30 recount what they were supposed to do. Moses says, when you get there, go to these two places. I want you to build an altar on Mount Ebal. Half the people will be on one mount, half of them will be on the other. And the priests were to read the the cursings and they were to read the blessings. And after they would read the cursings, the people were to say, amen. And after they read the blessings, everybody would shout, amen. And so there was this great, huge symphony. I mean, what a scene of the people of God saying, amen. And by saying amen, the word amen literally means so be it. They were agreeing, God, we agree with you. We agree and and say, amen, so be it. May these cursings come if we do not obey. And God, if we do obey, may these blessings come. When God says, you'll be the head and not the tail. You'll be blessed when you go in and and when you go out. But notice what God says too, and in all of that, it was a very powerful thing. He says, if you fully obey the Lord your God, if and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country, and I encourage you to go and read it and underline and highlight it because that's the blessing that God wants for each and every one of his kids. It's significant that this event takes place on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. It's a place of Shechem. Shechem is where God first came to Abraham. It was at Shechem where God promised Abraham to give him the promised land. I say that to you because there's no detail that is ever insignificant. Places, dates, and times, everything God does exactly for a reason. He says, go to this place. 
I want you to renew the covenant at this place, the very place where I promised Abraham. I promised to bless Abraham and all of his descendants would be blessed. That's his desire. And he says, I want you to do this. And so here they go back and forth and they read this. I think it's significant also the timing of this because listen, the timing is, is, is one where they had just experienced, listen, the curse of Yahweh's anger in chapter seven because they had disobeyed. And then they had experienced the blessing of Yahweh's favor and aid because they obeyed in chapter eight. So they just experienced both the blessings and the cursings. And so they read it out, these things from the law. They say, amen. They enter once again into a new commitment, a new covenant to be God's people, to do it God's way. And again, it reveals to not only about Israel, but again, God's, God's ways, the timeless principles about how obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings cursing. That if... Now, there's something that's interesting, and we'll get ready to go into communion and close. Because as beautiful and as powerful this is, as it is, there's something that as you study not only Israel, but you study history, you realize it's tragic. Because they're, they're saying all the blessings, amen, yes, I want that, I want that. And they're, they're saying the cursings, and they realize, yeah, I don't want that. And they think that's never going to happen. But we know all the cursings eventually come to Israel. Because eventually, sadly, tragically, they disobey. They don't fulfill the law. They don't live up to it. And all those cursings eventually, sadly, come down. But here's one thing I want us to see, and, and we might be tempted to miss it. And it's also a, a kind of a, a, a cipher, if you will, to read in your Bible. And what I mean by that, you should always be looking for something. You should always be looking for the cross. How do you understand your Bible? How, you know what a cipher is when you're trying to you know, encode a puzzle or something that's scrambled? The cipher gives you a, a, you know, a kind of a key to understanding. Well, it, the cross is the cipher, if you will, to understand the Bible. Always look for that. Because even here, we see a picture that points us to the cross. Because God commanded the law to be read, the people say, amen, we'll, we'll do it. And they don't even realize they're kind of condemning themselves because they ultimately can't do it. But God also commands, notice what it says here. It says that he also commanded an altar for sacrifice to be built. That altar was built not on the altar, uh, excuse me, not on the mountain of blessing, Mount Gerizim, but it was built upon Mount Ebal, the place of cursing. Because the curse came, it would come to them. In fact, Galatians in the New Testament picks up on this. It's in your notes. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If you're trying to say, I can do the law, you're going to be cursed. You're going to experience the cursings, cursings. As it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But praise God, he goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing giving to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The whole point, and when I say by the ciphers, always look for Jesus. You look for the cross because it's there over and over again. Because in this place of blessing, there was also the condemnation. And listen, we can't do this. The law was never meant to save. The law exposes our hearts. The, the, the Bible says the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor. It showed us, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I need a sacrifice. 
And we see a small picture where there was an altar that was burnt sacrifice where their sins were atoned for where on Mount Ebal in the place of cursing. What happened on Calvary? All of the cursings that you and I deserved, those fell upon Jesus. All of those things fell upon Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the story. Why did they fall upon Jesus? So that all the blessings that were read on Mount Gerizim, all that God desires to do for his kids, all those things can now be poured out upon all of those who by faith look to Jesus. The blessings that Jesus rightfully deserved as an obedient son, they come to you and me. They flow into our hearts by faith. And through that, and because of that, because the promise of the Spirit, that's the ultimate blessing, the Holy Spirit comes inside of our lives and empowers us and motivates us to obey and allows us to hear the commands of God, the voice of the Lord, and say yes and obey, and it brings blessings into our life. Joshua, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the end of it all, Moses says this, Choose you this day. I set before you life and death, blessing or cursing. Choose life that you may live and your offspring may live. And what I'd say to us tonight, what I'd say to you tonight, God is a God who wants to bless, but he's also a God who's very real and says, if you disobey, if you do it your own way, there's cursing that will come. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's fine. It's just me. I don't care. But listen, what you decide not only affects you, But when you choose life, the promise is also to you and to your offspring. What you do when you obey the Lord, you bring blessings into your life, but you also open the way for blessings to come into your family's life as well. And maybe some of your family isn't saved yet, but your act of obedience, you don't realize your act of obedience, what it can bring, what it can do, what God can do through your life and bringing all kinds of blessings to those around you. And so when everyone else is disobeying, everyone else is doing it their own way, you say, Lord, Holy Spirit, I want to obey. I want to choose life that I may live, that life may come to those around me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.